Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles. And I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important broadband issues in getting this technology everywhere that it needs to be. This is day, what day are we at? Day three, day three of our show uh, from uh, the Fiber to the Home conference. It's been a very good week. Uh, we've had a lot of focus on um, economic development and how broadband plays into that. Uh, very knowledgeable guests, very informative shows. You know, again, thank everybody for being here. Uh, today, I figured I'd switch up a little bit, and we're going to talk about uh, network management and how this, when done properly, uh, impacts the network. And I'm sure people can easily grasp the fact that uh, yes, if your network is uh, is operating smoothly, you know customers are happy. But I think it's one issue that not just the tech people should take uh, take note of. And so here to help us today, kind of go into some of the the network management issues, is the CEO of Hiawatha Broadband Communications, Gary Evans. Gary, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. Good deal. I know we're probably both of us are very tired. <laughs> but we we got we got game for another couple hours here, so we'll we only own for one of those hours. So All right, don't panic, don't panic. So let's talk about you know you did a presentation. It was basically the health of your network, uh, effective <clears throat> network management. So in the high level view, what what was your what was your presentation about? Well, Craig, through the uh, years, uh, HBC uh, of course one of the early uh, entrants into the overbuilding field and. Um, through the years, we have been sought out by companies um, looking for help in bringing their networks to full health. Right. And uh, we've been privileged to work with a number of clients. I'm pleased to say that virtually all of them were nursed back to health. There you go. There you and, go. Uh, so that's been a very good thing. Um, interestingly enough, it's certainly not a business we've looked to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a business that sort of occurred accidentally, I guess. And um, But, you know, if, if we can help uh, broadband companies be more successful, uh, I think everybody benefits okay. from that. So, so, you know, I think everyone thinks of network management as a geeks-only discussion, but who should be concerned about that? When I'm looking at the, you know, the broadband team, the broadband stakeholders in a community, who should care about the network management stuff? Well, I, I think uh, everybody in the community should care for very definite reasons. Um, if if this were to be a discussion for geeks only, you'd probably be talking to somebody <laughs> other than me. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. The the fact of the matter that uh, most um, 
network ails, ailments surface in a fiscal way. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, people, um, and, and there are a number of factors that contribute to that, but almost always uh, when our phone rings, it's because somebody's saying, you know, this network uh, just isn't performing financially the mm-hmm. way we envisioned it to perform. Uh, could you help us? And uh, uh, I don't profess to have any profound knowledge. Uh, most of what we do is simply common sense. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, most of the problems that uh, we diagnose and, and try to treat um, simply fall into uh, common sense as well. Things that maybe should have been thought about that weren't. Mm-hmm. So give us a couple of examples, especially on the things you want should be thinking about before this even gets off the ground. Well, uh, the the first thing is that I don't think a network ought to be built today until you can make a case among the audience you're going to serve or the network you're going to build. Um, most networks that get in trouble today are those that are built under the premise of if we put it in place, our take rates will immediately be wildly successful. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. Okay. <laughs> so so one of the things that uh, I would urge anybody thinking about building a network to do is to um, make certain that your business case is founded in fact. Mm -hmm. If you're forecasting a 40% take rate, you'd better be talking to people to determine that that's a good number. Mm -hmm. Um, Build it and they will come is is a great goal. Almost never, though, have I seen it happen. Right, right. Now, there are... There's two reasons, really, for for doing that. You want to make sure that you have the numbers that you expect because you're building a network to to that capacity. But at the same time, you also don't want to have the embarrassment of riches, which is you build a network and all of a sudden everybody's there and you haven't prepared for it because my guess is that's when your customer service and your technology infrastructure starts to have issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. That that is another critical factor. I, I think the plan, whatever plan you put into place, has to be easily scaled upward. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, it's a problem if you build for too few, and it's a problem if you build for too many. But you can hedge your bets. Mm-hmm. If you do some market research, if you talk to your prospective customers, if you find out the sorts of things they're thinking, and if you ask them for a commitment in advance. Mm-hmm. Now, that's basically what EC Fiber is doing, right? I mean, well, no, EC Fiber is yes and no. They're, they're asking people to, to, to buy or invest in promissory notes, but it has the effect of pre-ordering for the network so you know what's going on. It does. Uh, it absolutely does. Um Tim's a very smart operator. I'm speaking of Tim Nolte, right. and and certainly um, he is he is always going to hedge his bet in in a very solid way. Um, we're working with a project, interestingly enough, called RS Fiber, huh. uh, which is a fiber to the farm project. 
Uh, it's going to cover two counties in central Minnesota, and there um, a community volunteer group or communities volunteer group have been visiting everybody in the network footprint, asking them to make a pre-commitment to using the network. Mm-hmm. Right now, that, uh, that number would indicate minimum penetration of 58% at the time the network is activated. And that's pretty high. That's very high. Right. Because we had um, Frank Caruso in from Cootstown, Pennsylvania, and he was talking about the fact that they have 50%, 51% take rate, which puts them in a certain you know, status. You know, unknown by many yes. uh, network operators. I, I know that in our case, we we have used um, several tactics, um, strategies, if you will, to determine um, how successful the network is going to be and the sorts of things we have to look at originally. Uh, we have discovered that uh, uh, community residents um, – Respond best to food. Oh, really? Imagine that. (laughs) We do community dinners Mm -hmm. whenever we're introducing our company to a new community. Uh, We uh, utilize the restaurants in the community to serve the food so we don't get in trouble with them for causing them a bad night. Mm -hmm. And, And we tell our story and ask the people assembled to indicate their interest in the network in the form of a pre-sign-up. Mm-hmm. That helps us in a multiple of ways. Um, the first thing it does is give us an, a clear idea of take rate, and, and that's essential. The second thing it does is allow us to utilize our contractor more effectively by placing drops they're putting drops in place at the homes of those people who did pre-sign. So we get an economic benefit from that, and we get a quick turn-up benefit, which mm-hmm. is, is another thing. And um, the highest take rate that I have seen, uh, when we entered Wabashaw, Minnesota, which is a small com- Mississippi River community, 30 miles north of our home in Winona, Minnesota, that community dinner produced a penetration of 68%. Wow. Almost all of which was redeemed successfully. Mm -hmm. Something else that's relatively unheard of. Hmm. So we're really, when we talk, when you're talking about network management, it's not just an issue of managing the technology per se. It is basically managing all the issues that impact uh, the, the technology. I, I think it is mostly about managing all the issues that affect the technology. Now, certainly, we aren't going to underplay technology as as a critical or the most critical part of a network. Um, which means that you have to have very bright people making certain they're planning for all the eventualities, which certainly wouldn't be me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it normally is not the technology 
that gets you in trouble. It's poor planning, and it's poor management. It's um, unfounded expectation. Ah, uh, there's a good one. Those those are the things that dramatically impact network success. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about uh, the network expectations game. Um, I know somewhere in the last two days we have talked about that uh, on a couple of occasions because it is sometimes it is sometimes difficult to find that balance between you want to promote it enough so that everybody gets on board. So you have to promote this is a great thing that's about to happen. But if you overdo the greatness that's about to happen. You're you're looking at some some severe disappointment down the road. What? How, how do you manage that that balancing act? Well, I hope one of our listeners will call in and make some suggestions. <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, actually, uh, one of the things we have always found is that um, communities get very fired up about new connectivity. Um, Broadband today is a lifeblood for almost everybody. Um, you know, people talk. I, I looked at a blog earlier this week that was suggesting that rural America doesn't really need broadband. Oh. Um, not sure if that person lives on Mars or, or, or where. But the fact of the matter is that our agribusiness people today can't exist without immediate contact with the markets around the globe, mm-hmm. without immediate contact with the suppliers of the technology to make their operations more efficient. You know, there are just as many reasons in rural America for broadband to be in places there are in urban America. They're not the same reasons also. But but the expectation um, factor is mostly, we discover, based on wanting in the part of the operator to be as optimistic as you can be, mm. and that being a death trap. Uh, The fact of the matter is that networks are never activated as early as the forecast would indicate. Okay. And that's the first expectation that you ought to try and and attach reality to. Uh, if, If you activate a month or two months later than you told people you would, you find them quickly wearying. Mm-hmm. Of of the notion that you can really deliver service and more importantly deliver exemplary service. Right. Okay. So how who's who's the check? I mean, I know in in, in corporate America sometimes you have the marketing person people are the ones that are out leading the charge, leading the charge. And the accounting people are the ones who rein them in because they sign everybody's budget requests. <laughs> but we in, had that in, argument this morning, <laughs> as a matter of fact. No doubt, but but who who plays the roles? I mean, typically, or is there someone who would say typically play the role of controlling the expectations game? And- well, uh, in in our case, um, I guess I'm the check. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm probably a very poor person to be administering the check. 
I want uh, as badly as anyone for that network to be active at the earliest possible moment. But I also learned early on that the first estimate of activation date is almost always significantly wrong. Mm -hmm. And so now when I'm talking to my technologists, I automatically add a few months. Mm -hmm. And uh, Craig, to be very honest about this, I'm getting closer, but I still haven't reached an activation reality that has matched even what I consider to be my most conservative mm -hmm. estimate. Because it's just the nature of the, the beast. I mean, and not only do you have, you know, getting the technology and troubleshooting the technology, you have delivery issues, right? You have service issues from other people. There, there are a thousand things that can impact an activation date. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and the one thing that I have learned you never allow to happen is to try and connect customers before a network has been adequately, I would suggest over-adequately tested for effectiveness. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded when I was in the newspaper business and we got our first computer system, uh, we had people diving out of windows in an effort to try and keep their manual typewriters. <laughs> and uh, we did a wonderful job of installing the system. It came up without a flaw. Everything worked well, and two weeks later, the system crashed. Uh-huh. Coming up the second time was not an easy job. Right. We destroyed all of the confidence that people had that the system would work. And the same is true with networks. Mm -hmm. If if that network works very well and suddenly you have an outage that for whatever reason is extensive, you have cost yourself in a major way in in customer confidence. Mm -hmm. So how do you um, recover from that? We can talk about the planning end, but... It, it, it's a very tough job. I, I wish I could tell you that as a network doctor, I'd appeal to fix that. <laughs> uh, the fact of the matter is, it's it's like doing therapy after a heart attack. Okay. I mean, all you can do is, is get the situation corrected, work very hard to build your customer base, make sure that your um, treating them well and that, and that the network is operating well because, quite frankly, while our marketing folks would like to suggest they are the material difference in every success that happens, the, the fact of the matter is the voice of the customer speaks more loudly than any other voice mm -hmm. in all of this. Okay. So do, do you... Well, let's talk about things that you have seen that have worked well, and then we can talk about maybe some of the things that didn't work quite as well. So I'm on the begin, I'm on the front end. I'm, I've got the vision. You know, we're all, we're all clear in the vision. We have gone through whatever misery to get funding. You know, we're now ready to roll out the door. <clears throat> what kinds of things have worked well to keep both the technical development and the expectations management 
in some semblance of synchronicity? Well, um, this this is not rocket science, um, and that's a good thing, I suspect. Mm. Um, there is no substitute for honesty, okay. none whatsoever. So while the marketers would like to portray a flawless story, mm-hmm. um, stories are almost never flawless. Right. And and I think you can do yourself some early good by noting for prospective customers that this may not be a flawless ride, at least coming out of the chute. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use examples to illustrate that in Community A, this happened. In Community B, that happened. Um, while we fix one problem, we we sometimes find a different problem. So honesty is is a very important factor. I think that um, establishing an urgency in the workforce, the technology company's workforce, to deliver and to be totally dissatisfied and overwhelmed by a glitch mm-hmm. uh, is a very good thing. Um, the biggest issue of all is, in my opinion, constant communication with customers that gets to them in a way that they want Mm -hmm. to receive the information. For some, uh, that's going to be in in the form of an email message. Mm -hmm. For others, that same message may be considered spam. Mm -hmm. They might want a text. Uh, Others might want a phone call. Um, Some may want no communication at all, but generally that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, the social media today plays a far larger role than I would have imagined in the communication cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all of the social media um, aspects of today can be useful for a certain customer segment. Mm-hmm. You have to use them all. Mm-hmm. And you have to use them all regularly. Do you have a certain amount of trial and error that goes on with that? Well, I think over over time, I think you get better at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, we we try, for instance, to apply lessons learned in one market to trying to eliminate the problem in the next market or to try and improve the communication Mm -hmm. uh, in the next market. Um, it's amazing to me, Craig, um, and to be honest with you, I hate to tell you this, it's amazing to me how tolerant a customer will be. And and, uh, I have concluded that the reason for that is that um, our large monopoly brothers and sisters uh, have lowered the bar so far <laughs> on the service side of the equation. Oh Sorry, uh-huh. that that I, I made a call. I call all of our new customers um, within a week of their signing up for service. I made some calls from here last night, and the one person told me, "Oh, I just love the service. Um, I, I can't tell you how good it is." We have two TVs that aren't working, though. 
And I'm thinking, <laughs> you're totally happy and you have two television sets that aren't working? Wow. I, I mean, just amazing. Um, and uh, when I say, you know, Mrs. Jones, I would have expected you to call us two days ago. And, uh, oh, I didn't want to bother you. I mean, there's an amazing oh, customer tolerance. Mm -hmm. um, that quite frankly, I don't like at all. Mm. I don't want my customers to be satisfied with a product that doesn't work flawlessly. True. True. Um, that's that because you're not getting valuable feedback in that. Regard. No, we're not. So, um, but I will tell you this: um, when I find those things, it gets relatively immediate attention, and th and then the customer is overwhelmed uh, that right. that you would have intervened. So quickly to right. get the problem fixed, but eh, minor shock. Bill. So um, communication, um, using all the lessons you've learned in the past uh, as teachers for a new uh, area that's being activated, um, and being diligent about staying in touch with the customer, not just before services activated, but also after. Mm -hmm. um, we, as I said, I call every new customer, but uh, we diligently chart repeat uh, trouble calls. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, and uh, our customer service reps follow up on anybody who has reported some sort of problem. Mm -hmm. um, these are things that um, many companies today don't do, and it's the reason that um, companies that deliver this kind of service are becoming more and more successful. Hmm. Uh, I really think that there is a value equation out there, and I don't think it has to be price. Mm -hmm. I think it can be service. Mm -hmm. I would contend, I mean, this week, so let's see, this week we had uh, folks from Lafayette, from Chattanooga, from uh, Kutztown. I think in all of those cases, they would probably contend that it is the quality of service that's the big differentiator. The close second is the fact that they're the hometown team, the fact that they are actually are local, but they all agreed that being local by itself doesn't help. It's being local, and oh, by the way, we are going to provide that, that extra level of service. It's like the validation of why being local is valuable. Yeah, it, it, those are, are uh, uh, unquestionably two keys. I would add another, uh, and that is real people. Mm -hmm. uh, people that answer the phone when a call is made. I, I can't tell you how many people that I talk to say, I really enjoy being able to get a real person. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know any people who aren't real, but uh, <laughs> the, the, the thing about this is we have become a nation of, of um, messages that say for this press one, for this press two, for this press three. And then when we press one, we get a number of prompts and, and sometimes we wear out before we get to the real person. Uh-huh. So we, um, yeah, we're kind of at a, 
Yeah, you're right. The bar is lowered to such a point that it does make things rather, uh, rather, rather difficult. And I, I, I can see where that is a, um, where, where that's a factor. What are some of the, I don't know, what kind of surprises come out of these projects? Either, well, I mean, we'll start with technology because I think you know, again, when you have a discussion about network management. You know, the first thing is, you know, well, how do you manage the technology side? Because it's changing, it's evolving, it's, you know, you know, it's going through rapid change. How do you, how do you get a handle on all that? Well, um, let, let's focus on the technology for a minute. Um, the things we have found uh, when we have been called upon to go in and and help companies. Um, it, it, it's amazing to me because the first thing we find is that um, software upgrades have not been done. Mm -hmm. That's amazing to me. Mm -hmm. How could you not do a software upgrade? Mm -hmm. The second thing that amazes me is in many cases, the technicians have not had any ongoing training. Mm -hmm. And as we both know, technology changes dramatically and constantly. I mean, if you're not, if you don't have an ongoing training program, you're headed for a disaster, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. um, so on the technology side, it is an equipment failure. Um, it, it is the fact that people don't take the time to do the upgrades and people don't take the time or don't spend the money to make sure that they always have well-trained people. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you deal with the fact, though, that um, you have, in many cases, vendors and you have uh, suppliers that are not uh, local, but they're definitely not part of the, the the, the team. Even when you have a public-private partnership, right, there is a service provider, right, there is a community organization. Okay, that's all good, well and good, but there comes a time when, you know, there are parts issues, there are software issues, like you just mentioned. How do you deal with that? Because... Well, um, for me, it, it seems relatively easy. Um, and I suspect that this will seem somewhat sacrilegious, but um, in our company, we don't bid anything. Say that again? We don't bid anything. Okay. We don't bid construction jobs. We don't bid equipment purchases. We identify what we want, and we try to create a very close friendship with the supplier of the equipment or the company that's going to be doing the construction. When our business plan is done, as an example, Craig, we will go to our contracting firms, and they're not many in number now. I mean, we've, we've whittled that list down to a precious few. And we say we are going to build XYZ community. It must be built for this amount in order for our business plan to to make sense. Can you do it for that? Mm -hmm. um, we also do that with equipment. Now, if you do those things, um, uh, you wind up with a relationship that has them working alongside you when there's an emergency. Mm -hmm. um, 
they don't always have to be physically next to you, mm-hmm. but they have to be next to you and engaged in a real way. And uh, I will tell you that that the companies that we have come to value um, deliver that sort of uh, of response to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so no one, um, so no one seems to have an issue. Um, uh, have an issue with the um, so I guess what I was trying to get to is that no one has an issue with the fact that um, it is a no-bid process because aren't, aren't some of your partners governments and aren't they sort of that's the way they think about these things? Well, some, some of the uh, some of the communities that uh, we work with Craig um, uh, do in fact have bidding requirements. Um, we try to intervene in that process, um, helping them select companies uh, or at least getting them into the bidding arena. Um, and generally speaking, uh, they have uh, they have been successful in in getting. Uh, the contract for the work, um, it just makes it a whole lot easier to get the kind of responsiveness you need. So whenever we're involved with a project up front, um, we're very clear about um, uh, what we would like to see happen. We're Mm -hmm. very clear about the firms that we hope are invited to bid. And... um, Generally speaking, we advocate a process that leaves uh, a little bit of discretion um, to the municipality. Mm -hmm. Uh, By way of example, in Minnesota, um, uh, bidding projects, uh, bidding processes, if you issue an RFP, then the low bidder has to get the work. Right. If you issue an RFI, request for information, Mm -hmm. you can determine whether the low bidder should get the work or whether there's something about that low bid that may cause you to think uh, additionally about where the award should go. Mm -hmm. So now is that something that needs to be worked out ahead of time when you develop the 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 public uh, the public private partnership absolutely okay because I'm assuming that there are so many uh, I don't know I, I, guidelines and issues and politics subtly or not subtly that you have to to deal with in order to yeah you you cannot take um, the politics out of out of a project exclusively or, right. or totally. Um, You can, however, in the educational stage, try to make the decision makers aware of some of the pitfalls in the um, in the processes. Mm -hmm. So um, and 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 we have found um, our communities uh, and our community partners pretty responsive um, to the lessons uh, that we we have taught. Um, I would point out that in today's world, um, 
we have become a bit more selective than we were originally. Mm -hmm. uh, you brought up a word early in the interview. Um, you mentioned vision. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have discovered that that is the critical variable um, in any partnership that we consider. Mm -hmm. and, and if that vision is lower prices for service, we don't get involved. Right. And and that's probably from a if, – if your goal is to always be delivering quality service, from a vendor perspective, that's kind of key. That's kind of crucial. Absolutely key. Mm -hmm. And and uh, if, if, if the only thing that a community wants is lower prices, uh, I can almost guarantee that – a project will not be successful. Mm -hmm. And it won't be successful because generally speaking, if, if a municipality, as an example, is getting into telecommunications, um, there's going to be an incumbent there. Mm -hmm. And the incumbent is going to buy more efficiently and effectively and uh, is going to have costs that are lower than the municipality will have, and all of those things add up to a bad situation. Right, and we have to be we have to be careful about that. Now, what do you do about the obsolescence issue? Or you know, to, I mean, you've got the you've got the vendor or you've got the provider perspective because that's what you guys are. But you know, maybe like, what's the answer to uh, from both perspectives? So from a vendor perspective or an ISP perspective, you know, how do you deal with obsolescence, but also from the uh, community side, whether it's muni-owned or co-op or non-profit? Well, in, in our partnerships today, um, we insist that we want to be in on the ground floor mm -hmm. because if, if a partner doesn't understand um, that the network won't last forever or the technology driving the network won't last forever, that's another train wreck waiting mm -hmm. to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of the educational process is defining life cycles of equipment, making clear plans for keeping the network fresh, Mm -hmm. um, the bigger issue for us is what happens when you encounter a network uh, that's sadly outdated and there's no resource mm -hmm. with which to improve it. We're working with one community where that is a very definite issue. Mm -hmm. um, their video equipment is beyond its life cycle. Mm -hmm. um, they're having a lot of trouble. We have managed to make some progress by utilizing our partner firms to help um, put some things in place that have mitigated the problems. Um, but, you know, that lasts for a while, and it's good for a while, but, but it doesn't last forever, and it mm -hmm. doesn't cure the problem completely. Um, there is no substitution in the technology area for planning for the 
equipment obsolescence that is going to occur. Um, there's another issue that, that I would refer to. Um, you know, there are some communities that never get in the game because they're always waiting for the ultimate in technology. Oh, yes, indeed. I know and there isn't well. such a thing as the ultimate in technology. <laughs> it's going to change tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got both ends of the spectrum to deal with um, planning and education, best I can do for telling you how you combat that. Mm -hmm. So, because uh, we, um, one of the guests on Monday, uh, Peter Folk from Volo Broadband, talked about the fact that everybody who is operating a network, whether it's a nonprofit, co-op, city, you know, private company, whatever, they need to learn the mechanics of their business. Not so much they need to know every little detail, but they need to really understand how the business works because you can't outsource certain expertise. You just need to know how a process works. Um, Peter said it. Um, with um, great excellence, in my opinion. Um, again, you you don't have to know um, every nuance of the business, but you need to understand those things that are critical um, to successful operation. And if the only thing that you're looking at is the bottom line, you're in a really bad place. Right, right. <laughs> I know that's a pretty interesting. Um, there's a uh, a guy that I that I've interviewed in one of my books a, a number of years ago, and he talked about the need for doing a pilot project, which, by the way, is a subject that we'll talk about in a little bit. But one of the things he said was, you know, the pilot project is your education. Be willing to pay for your education. I look at Peter's comments in front of that in sort of the same vein, and sort of, you know, there is an education that you need to have. And yes, in this case, it may be time that you swear, well, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to learn about that stuff. And his basic bottom line is, but you need to pay for that education. That education is important to your ability to have a good network. That, that's exactly uh, right also. Um, one of the things that, that we frequently see happen in our public-private partnerships is um, – that the public entity wants to assume that everything they do has prepared them for what they're going to do in telecom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Never the case. Right. I mean, because everything they do, uh, they do from a monopoly position, and everything they're going to do is going to put them into a competitive arena. And, and so it's... Um, almost like electric therapy is needed to clear their brain of the notion that everything they have learned is going to be useful in the new endeavor. It frequently isn't going to be. Right. And so they've got to um, accept that and, and move on. Now, let's talk about pilot projects for a second, because if I'm looking at issues of, you know, dealing with managing the, the network, both from a technology standpoint and a business standpoint, go, you know, from the launch date, isn't the pilot project basically where you figure out what a lot of those issues are going to be? Um, it is. I, I'm not sure that pilot project in our case would fit the popular definition. 
Um, we were very fortunate um, at the time that we began to be a pilot project um, that was devoted exclusively to education. Mm -hmm. um, we learned so many things that were helpful as we decided to serve the general public. Mm -hmm. um, it's a luxury that, that most companies don't get. Mm -hmm. um, should should it be a necessity? Um, I I just had a discussion with one of the attendees uh, here this morning, uh, who asked me the question. Um, we're planning to build a great big area. Is the area we're planning to build too big? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and <laughs> all of those statements are are relative. However, uh, what I said to him is plan to build the big area, mm -hmm. but start with a little piece and learn from the little piece. Right, I guess right. that you could refer to that as a pilot project. Right. Um, I would see it, you know, maybe I would define it uh, differently. I think your definition of pilot project I'm guessing would fit what I have just said. Right. Well, you're, you're taking, um, you're, 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 you're doing a smaller piece of the bigger project. I think the pilot project term is something that comes from the software world, or at least my orientation yes. to the software world and mobile devices, where you get, you know, 25 users and you give them the application, but they represent, you know, 500 employees that ultimately will get the product. Yeah, the the only um, problem that I see in what we're just talking about mm -hmm. is that if you're talking about building a network, you at least want the drivers, the head ends, to be large enough to scale to uh, the bigger right. area, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and and so. Um, it, it can be a little more complex as we look at a pilot project that would be a small piece of a bigger area. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to underbuild, right? Um, and you don't want to overbuild either. Mm -hmm. So um, I think you uh, try and pick the brain of somebody who's been there mm -hmm. and say, help me out with this issue. How do I approach it? Um, what can I do? Um, and and I think in this case, you know, planning the larger project but building it a piece at a time, um, if you build it all and it behaves poorly, um, you're almost certainly headed for failure. Right. If you plan the large picture, build a small piece of it, now you can correct the things that you learn before you move on. Mm -hmm. Which, which I think is a much better strategy. Right, and just get your, you know, whatever your mistakes are going to be in such a way that you're not crippling a significant part of your, you know, customer base that you just assume keep happier than not. Absolutely. Right, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, software, I know in smaller or uh, smaller projects, again, whether we, regardless of who the actual operator is, community, nonprofit, or whatever, when you are dealing with a smaller town, an area where there isn't um, 
you know, you know, busloads of people with expertise. Um, some folks say, well, you know, create software, some sort of software applications or applets or whatever that can help you run the business. You know, you can basically give people a, you know, a templated walkthrough kind of software to help talk people through baseline customer support. Yeah. You know, you can script the software to talk people through, you know, baseline tech support uh, issues. Yeah, and I'm referring to the people working for the network, not the customer. Um, is that a good idea? How do you either find or make something that's, you know, a valuable piece of software? We, we do it a little bit differently. Okay. Um, we have a video production company. Aha. And so what we do is film the practices that we want our technicians to follow. Uh-huh. And then we construct a story to go with it. Interesting. And it becomes part of our training. Um we do have uh, some software that we employ in training, uh, but not nearly as as um, with not nearly the frequency that we utilize um, videos mm -hmm. uh, to help our technicians. Um, we also have become very deft at begging, borrowing, and stealing things. When you can do that and within the confines yes. of the law, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so if we know that a company that's relatively near us has perfected a process, um, we will ask them if they would mind us visiting. And by the way, can we bring a cameraman? Uh-huh, okay. And uh, amazingly, the answer is almost never no. Uh-huh. They're probably not going to share something proprietary with us. Right. Uh, but typically, companies are pretty good about helping out um, other companies uh, because someday that may be reversed. Mm-hmm. How do you... Um... Okay, so when I think of video production... Even in a training side point, someone sort of has to script out how the final uh, beast looks. How do you determine how the final? I mean, you, I can, but I can see you going in to do a, you know, taking yep. a process, and you get sort of the raw information. But don't you have to at least massage it a little bit? Well, absolutely. Um, I referenced Dan Pecorina, I think, earlier in the interview, who mm -hmm. is our executive vice president and probably one of the savviest technologists I've ever known, but we'll go shoot the raw footage mm -hmm. uh, and uh, bring it back to Dan, mm -hmm. who will understand what he's looking at, Okay, and Dan will work then with the person who shot the video to do the edits as he wants them, and then he will comprise the narrative that will go along uh -huh, with it. Okay. it. It's the reverse of how uh, most of the time uh, TV production would be done. Mm -hmm. Most of the time the storyboard would come first and then the video exactly would be Exactly right. Shot. That would be, that's like, yeah, okay, I gotcha. So, um, and the need I assume are very effective because people can see what what they're... Well, the other thing about them is people can pause them, people can uh, go right, right, back, right. People can um, pretty much manipulate them at at will. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a pretty effective style um, we have found for 
training and learning. Mm -hmm. Now, how does the exercise go um, get implemented or executed? See, I, I expect being a marketing person from way back. I expect that you know marketing people have forecasts and someone on the tech side, at least from the software world, someone on the tech side, you know, creates a timeline for developing the app, releasing the app, releasing upgrades and so forth, right? But there's a sort of a circle that happens, you know, from market projection back to product planning, you know, you might be doing a new service, what have you. How does this happen in the in the broadband world? Um, or should it happen? Well, it probably should happen. <laughs> um I think it happens around products and services mm -hmm. uh, where um, now this afternoon in, in my absence, um, my team has uh, is sitting down uh, to visit uh, about the things we need for next year to be really successful. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that will start our product development cycle, if you will. Okay. And then it will go to our product development team. Mm -hmm. Even though we're a very small company, we have a very good product development team that will decide what has to happen to get it in place. Um, once we know we have a, an achievable goal, it will come back to the marketers mm -hmm. who will then begin to plan the story that we will use in putting it out to the public. Um, so it does happen, but it's almost always around the new product and service side. Okay. Uh, for instance, uh, pretty much about now, um, one of our close friends, if you will, um, John Goodman, who is developing a very interesting um, application that pairs up technological simplification with healthcare, mm -hmm. um, is is um, getting ready to roll out a product that will be tested on our network mm -hmm. and. This is one that we work through the process. Here's the place where we will do a pilot project. Mm -hmm. We're rolling it out to 50 people in our area. We'll want them to use, use it. Um, you're too young to know this, Craig. But <laughs> <laughs> when, All right, try me. When, when television first became a factor, there were no remote controls. That we had to get up and turn them on and turn them off. And, and it's amazing we survived to get older. Yes, it yes. is. <laughs> and then the remote was developed. Mm -hmm. It was a very simple device. Even I could use it. And then the remote kept getting more and more and more complex. Right. I mean, you can still use it. I can't anymore. <laughs> John's concept takes us back the remote with very few buttons. Yes, it does do simplify. Right. Simplify. And, and we think that will help in particular elderly and handicapped audiences significantly. And we have also managed to pair it with a healthcare application mm -hmm. um, that I'm particularly excited about. Mm -hmm. So um, 
in this case, um, we're going to roll it out to um, 50 homes mm -hmm. of elderly and handicapped people, and we're going to see how it behaves in the home. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this because the second half of our show is going to really get into a lot of issues related to, to applications. But I, the operator, again, you know, I may be the municipal operator, the public utility, the, the private company operator. Um, how much should I care about applications and, you know, as opposed to, you know, do I sell it, the access service, and I just make sure the access service is as good as it can be, and then I go home and go to bed? Or do I really want to care a lot about the apps, and if I do, you know, in what way do I turn caring into something productive for the business? Well, that, <laughs> an interesting topic that we could probably talk about for hours. Yeah. Um, I, I understand we're, <laughs> we're limited in time. Um, it seems to me that in order to, to achieve and maintain success, one of the things that has to happen, particularly in the broadband world, is we do have to be concerned about applications. Mm -hmm. Applications can um, equate to revenue streams, mm -hmm. and revenue streams um, equate to success. Doesn't mean that revenue streams have to be mercenary. I think there is a way to marry uh, quality of life applications to revenues. Uh, the product that we're talking about on the healthcare side. Um, as it was in the conceptual stage, and we were interviewing um, people like you to talk about it, um, we didn't bump into one person who didn't say to us either, gee, I wish that I'd have had that when my folks were uh, in need of it, or mm -hmm. gee, is it available today? I could sure use it for my mom. Um, and uh, so... This is a product that, although it will provide a revenue, uh, I believe is also a clear quality of life application mm -hmm. that will be very useful. Do I think the user will pay for it? No. I think that um, the children of the users will pay for <laughs> okay. it because in today's world, um, most of us who still have parents alive don't live near them, right? And we are still very concerned about them, and we would like to achieve several things as children. I think first, we we would like to respect their wish to live independently as long as possible, perhaps right. even longer, right? as long as we can be certain that there's an intervention right. that will be there in a critical time of need. Mm -hmm. So we'll fund that for our folks, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, but so I think, I think the answer to your first question is we have to be very concerned about applications. I think um, the second point I would make is um, additional revenue streams are good for the network. Mm -hmm. I mean, our margins on a lot of fronts, particularly on the television side, are being eroded. So additional uh, yeah, right. apps, 
wonderful from that perspective. And I don't think they have to run counter to quality of life situations. Right. So we basically should be looking at each because, I mean, there's two ways you can do business. I mean, you can do business strictly on the dollars and cents, or you can do business in some combination of dollars and cents, but we are a community network. You know, and maybe particularly if it is a community yes. network. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, um, well, no, I was going to say, obviously, even if you're a privately owned network, but I don't think that's really the case because in my worldview, jaded though it may be, um, you know, a small local private company will probably care as much as um, a public utility for the good of that community. Because even though one's public and obviously beholding to the to the to the community, the private sector company owes its success to the community. And Absolutely true. I can tell you that in Winona, Minnesota, which is much smaller than your hometown. Yes, it is. <laughs> if, if, if if you think that people would hesitate to call me. You're absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the fact is, in a small town, everybody knows you. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, they will let you know whenever things aren't working to their satisfaction. Right. So, now they know that you're there. Absolutely. Right, because, you know, you talked at the very beginning, and then we'll wrap this down and, and move to our next guest. But at the very beginning, you talked about, you know, when you are a new provider, you are the new community network and you are coming into an area that has only been served by the large, distant, and impersonal provider, you guys become such a breath of fresh air that people don't necessarily take advantage of it at the beginning because they're not used to it. But I'm guessing that after about a year of that, you know, up close and personal service, then they're just like, well, I can call, I can call, I can call these guys now. I can call this guy at dinner. I can call Marge at, you know, lunch. Oh, you have no idea how many times <laughs> my telephone rings after midnight mm -hmm. uh, to report to me that a video on demand feature didn't come up as it was Santa, supposed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, this business, large or small, um, to me, needs to be about caring. Mm -hmm. um, if if you care, um, everything gets better, right? Including the bottom line. Excellent. It is, you know, it isn't rocket science. Mm -hmm. Treat people like you'd like to be treated, and they will do what you'd like them to do. And that is probably the best network management advice that there can be. That's absolutely the best advice. Excellent. This has been a great show. As always, it's good to have you on again, Gary. You do a great interview and you make the show good. So thank you for being on board. Um, you know, enjoy the rest of your day. You head back when? You know, I'm going back in the morning. It was worth the price of admission to see you again. Oh, cut it out. <laughs> All right. Well, you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Craig. All righty. Take care. Bye now. All right. Goodbye. All right, folks. That was Gary, and yes, Gary has been on the show before, and comes like a regular, and has always good advice uh, for our audience. So, you know, I used um, the last couple of minutes uh, with Gary to set up a discussion on applications, uh, because clearly, you know, as much as the last few days have been about the infrastructure, the network, the business of of broadband, um, the the key factor that cannot be overlooked is without good applications, you can't have good uh, networks. 
So I'm going to call in my uh, next guest, and we're going to get ready to get into a deep dive on applications in a gigabit world. I am calling Marcus. Hopefully we will connect here. Will, are you there? Hey, I am. There we go. This modern technology just really rocks and roll. Will by here at the um at the at the conference. So we're we're calling Will by the way, where are we? Oh, you're cal- back in California, right, Will? I am back in California. Here you go. Back in uh my neck of the woods. So um for our audience, uh, uh Mozilla is um a company that makes uh, uh, web browsers and a number of web tools uh, to help the user experience online be more productive, more effective, more entertaining, and so forth. And they have started a an offshoot project related in, in some res- many respects, which is uh, Mozilla Ignite, um, which is on a mission to go out and find and cultivate and encourage the next generation of broadband applications, applications that will take advantage of uh, these gigabit networks as they come online. And uh, with us today is uh, Will Barkas, who is the um, gigabit evangelist, I believe, uh, your website, who is involved in uh, this this Mozilla Ignite project. So, Will, I'm going to not steal your thunder Welcome to the show, and, and, and tell us a little bit about this project. Yeah, thank you, Craig. Um, yeah, I love that I get to put that on my business cards. Um, you know, I get to wake up every day and think about, you know, what are the next generation apps um, with impact, uh, particularly in areas of public benefit. Um, that's a big push for this this whole U.S. Ignite initiative that um, Mozilla Ignite is a part of. Um, well, but I want – oh, go ahead. Sorry. Have a, I think we have a, te- uh, a, a reception issue. Um your your line sounds a little little staticky. I don't know if the place you can move to. I don't know if it's a reception issue. Let me try getting as close to the window as possible. Is it still is it still bad? It's like you're breaking up a little bit. Okay. Well, um we have two options. We could try I can try calling you on this uh Tell you what, dial out number which we discussed before is voice over IP, so we're putting the network technology to the test. <laughs> technology is one of the – tell you what, Will, let me do this. Let me give you our call-in number. You can call okay. in from the nearest landline there in your office, and then we can continue the conversation. So Let's our number is uh, 323-679-0845. Great. I'll talk to you in 20 seconds. No worries. All right, just a minor little uh, interruption here, folks. We will be back on uh, line as soon as Will calls back in. Um, uh, Actually, Will has been on our show before, right uh, a couple of months ago, uh, talking about the Mozilla Ignite project. It's a very interesting, um, there's a very interesting set of programs that have been put in place to foster application development. And uh, let's see, I think we can... Does that... Will... Craig, how's that sound? There we go. Now we're... Is that, is that better? Yep. Great. Sorry about that. Uh, we 
thought the cell would work. But um, yeah, so I guess I was just saying, um, where was I talking about? Oh, that I, I get. I love that I get to wake up and think about, you know, these next generation, quote unquote, gigabit apps. Um, you know, for a living, it's it's pretty. I feel pretty lucky, <laughs> frankly. So um, that's for sure. Yeah, and so um, you know, I like to I like to take a minute and step back <clears throat> and talk about you know that the sort of the big picture um, that I mean that we all kind of take for granted, but the sort of the creativity, you know, and the wealth and actual impact of today's internet <clears throat> is um, is largely due to the the apps that run on it, right? I mean, I think uh, there's actually a good quote from um, from our executive director Mark Sermon at the U.S. Ignite launch when he said. Um, you know, it's really important to look back at recent history. It goes it goes without saying that it wasn't just the network; it was the apps that built uh, that we built that got us where we are right now. Um, you know, without email, without the web coming out, you wouldn't see this tremendous demand for networking. And what we're trying to do with US Ignite and Mozilla Ignite as part of that is to do it again. You know, but with things we can't imagine right now. Um, so um, first, I would want to say, just as the quick hook, the development round for Mozilla Ignite is open. So if you're a developer out there and you're listening to this, now is the time to jump over to MozillaIgnite.org and take a look at what we're trying to do. But um, at the same time, we just announced the winners of the brainstorming round. Um, I know I'm diving right in without even telling you what Mozilla Ignite is, but uh, just wanted to get your attention. Like there, there is this is a challenge to um, the public and to the developer community to imagine and then now actually build um, apps from the future meaning apps on these next-generation networks that are gigabit per second and deeply programmable, which is something I'd like to come back to at some point. But, um, yeah, I know we're going we're gonna to talk through the winners. There were eight winners, uh, $15,000 in prizes announced today. And um, But this is just really the beginning. The development round has another $485,000 uh, over the next six months to really see some of these things built. So we want to see, you know, we want to see your code. We want to see prototypes or at least something on the way to a prototype um you know that has some running code along with it um and so and i guess you know i should probably step back and talk just a minute about us ignite and the sort of overall vision which is really that there are things we can do on these networks with uh, significant impact in people's lives that are not possible on today's internet and the focus is on national priority areas um you know education and workforce technologies healthcare um gary evans was doing awesome stuff in that, as you just heard. Uh, advanced manufacturing, public safety, clean energy, and transportation. So, <clears throat> Craig, feel free to interrupt at any point here. Obviously, this is your show. <laughs> uh, and if I'm not doing a good job explaining what we're trying to do, please ask questions. I'm, I'm happy to clarify. Um, but basically, the challenge itself, the Mozilla Ignite challenge, uh, feeds into this overall U.S. Ignite. Uh, effort to create these killer apps um, and, uh, you know, sh really show the impact of the technology is the ultimate goal. So we started out with a brainstorming phase where anyone out there, you know, you don't have to be a technologist, could uh, submit an idea. And the goal was really to uncover the best ideas from all corners of the country uh, and from the people who actually use them, you know, the educators or the, the clinicians, the folks actually doing the, you know, the day-to-day -day work and say, you know, here's a problem we have. Here, here's a solution that this kind of technology could could potentially bring to bear. Um, and so that was that. Just like I said, ended. We just announced the winners today, actually. Um, and so we'll, we'll get to that. 
And now, you know, this is where the rubber meets the road. The really exciting phase is now that we're going to actually build these apps um, and hope that the developers can take some of the ideas from the brainstorming round and also their own ideas. Um, so to be clear, you do not have to use one of the ideas that was submitted um, <clears throat> and actually build something. So so that's where we're at. And I think for, the, for, for folks out there who are maybe – confused about the technologies or or unclear about what what's possible when we talk about high speed you know deeply programmable networks because this is something that that takes a little while to get your head around well you know the the way to think about it I think is how do you or what kinds of technology or rather uses of technology are possible when like the place you're at or the geography or the physical location no longer determines your access to the best quality education, you know, anywhere, or or healthcare, access to healthcare, um, uh, you know, or what if you could collaborate with people in real, in truly real time? I mean, these are very, very low latency, meaning almost low delay networks where you can get really rich, high quality two-way interactions with people, um, or if you could um, access essentially, you know, very large data sets for for healthcare, for public safety, for transportation. You know, what kinds of problems could you solve or your city officials solve if they had really rich interfaces to these things? Um, you know, I think one example that people have seen was from the, the movie Minority Report, um, if people remember that, which, where Tom Cruise is doing some detective work and he's, he's got these gloves on, you know, Beethoven's playing in the background and he's interacting with these, you know, massive data sets by using gestures and sort of reaching through, reaching his arms out in space and grabbing things and moving them around, you know, it's kind of... Um, these are the kinds of things that you can do with these rich interfaces to, to massive data sets we're talking about. So, so anyway, that's yeah, that's kind of a a broad picture. Okay, where do you want to dive in? So, well, let's okay. Let me re, sort of recap, make sure I got my my head around things. So, the Ignite uh, program, which we actually did a I know a good hour and a half on uh, when, when that was first launched, it's basically a program that has pulled pull together various uh, organizations, public sector, private sector, and so forth, to create an, an um, I don't know, an, an environment almost in which people can test out the potential of these high-speed networks. In other words, where people can come up with ideas and then come up with test labs, come up with, you know, people to be volunteers to use the network. But in essence, uh, create a uh, almost like a funnel to, to kind of put a little bit of order to, you know, there's a million people out there with ideas. Here's this sort of Ignite funnel that says, well, let's bring these kind of together and sift them around a little bit and sort out and, and move people to where they can take an idea and give it shape and form and maybe find other people who share a similar vision or a similar idea and may be able to provide financial support or programming support or any number of things that are needed to move the ball forward. Is, is that a fair? Yeah, that is absolutely that is absolutely it. It's it's complicated to explain in some ways. I mean, you nailed it. But um, but what I would say, one thing I would say in, is that so this ignite community. Or it's it's two things in some ways. It's it's the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, of these islands of broadband. You know, cities like Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Lafayette, Louisiana, and a, and a handful of others who you know, uh, Winona, Minnesota. You know, uh, who who have had the vision and built out the infrastructure, and that infrastructure is being tied together by this 
National Science Foundation uh, infrastructure called Genie, uh, so to create essentially a very large physical infrastructure that you know, I, in my count, it passes more than 500,000 homes and businesses if you you know in all in total, mm-hmm. and it's a work in progress, but it's um, I mean it's it's trying to you know unite all these things together, and so there's the physical infrastructure piece. And that extends even to you know the clinic where you want to do a pilot site, or you know, or the the, the classroom where you want to try out an, an educational app. So so the infrastructure is broader than just a networking infrastructure. It's it's sort of even into the physical classroom, or, and, and as you said, the people, which is the other piece, social infrastructure. It's um, you know knowing the community catalysts in Chattanooga who are helping connect you know some developers to the right resources, or the or the folks at the university, or the or the health clinic. So. It, it is this really rich kind of ecosystem is a metaphor used a lot, but it's really, it's, it really is this rich ecosystem. And, and one thing I would say to listeners out there who are kind of trying to figure or get their head around this is reach out to, to me, reach out to the usignite.org partnership, which is actually the sort of locus of control or at least organization and facilitation of this community. Um, if you have an idea, if you have questions, if you want to be connected to resources or, you know, wh- whatever it may be. And that could be mentorship. That could be money. That could be, um, you know, an actual physical test bed you need to get access to. Like we, we have access to this genie network if you want to try out some of your ideas and build something. So one thing to do in, in, in realizing this is a very rich ecosystem is to realize that there are some key connectors in it so that, you know, one starting point is drop me an email. Uh, you know, my email is will at mozillafoundation.org. And I can put you in touch with the people at the US Ignite partnership or in, you know, Winona. Like I've, I've talked to Gary Evans before. We can connect people, you know, the best way we can. And I think the social infrastructure of US Ignite is one of the richest pieces of it. Um, and so if it seems overwhelming, start by just dropping an email. And I'm happy to get on the phone with folks. So I should, I'll say that. This sounds pretty uh, pretty impressive. So when exactly uh, – my mind is, is, is leaving me at the moment. When exactly did this – program kick off the the ground so the total evolution of u.s ignite um or or sort of and i I was working at the national science foundation before um taking on this role at mozilla it started actually with a and may may have started before this but to best of my knowledge came out of a meeting at the white house in january of 2010 it was kind of one of these things where cities had built out the infrastructure um you know, large menu, or large sort of network providers and, and some of the private sector folks who are working in this space were interested in figuring out what the next steps were. Uh, and everyone came together to kind of say, look, we need to let you kind of bring our efforts together, leverage what everyone else is trying to do, and, you know, create something where we can share what we've learned and share our resources and figure out, you know, how to move forward on this. Um, so there was a meeting there but that was before it was even called U.S. Ignite. And then out of that meeting, a number of other workshops that the National Science Foundation held um, came out of it. Some folks in Cleveland, um, Lev Gonick, and and a bunch of people up there are pretty far advanced, and and they had a workshop that we um, sort of joined forces with, we we meaning the National Science Foundation, and then the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy is a sort of locus of of some of the organization there. And... um, it kind of became this bootstrapping thing. I mean, it actually in itself, like we call it, you know, it's called U.S. Ignite, but it, which implies this sort of uh, explosive positive feedback loop type of activity 
you know, like a wildfire or something. And it and, um, it sort of has a, it has felt like that all along. Like there's a lot of excitement and energy, and people can use US Ignite to help whatever you know to help advance their cause in whatever way, shape, or form it you know it may take. Um, so it's been a, a kind of a focusing point for people. Um, and Mozilla came into that process because uh, the National Science Foundation was interested in you know building these you know a few of these uh, these apps with impact and you know it's a little bit like the iPhone model of development where you create some awesome infrastructure you know in that case it's the the phone and you, but you need to get up on stage and build a point to some apps and say like here's why it's awesome <laughs> right I mean you you need the Google Map app or the uh, email on your phone or or like so being able to surf the web on your phone, you know, like you need to be able to see all that together and say like, oh yeah, I need that technology or or it would have actual impact. Um, and then the third piece is that you open up the platform to others to innovate on. And so I, I think US Ignite is really kind of some level following those three, these, those three things. And so Mozilla got involved to help on the second piece of that, which is building some of these killer apps, right? A few of them. And it was an attempt, or you know, there are 40,000 people who have contributed code to Firefox over the years, and you know, 400 million people who use Firefox as a browser. And so, Mozilla's reach into the developer community and the you know the sort of broader public um, was a good way to get people engaged in the conversation and excited about these next generation technologies, and actually starting to build some of them. So we came in. Um, you know, we, we we entered into, or we now meaning Mozilla, um, came in to partner with the National Science Foundation and run, essentially, like to give the nuts and bolts of what Mozilla Ignite is, is to run an app development challenge. And mm -hmm. so, we, um, you know, we have five hundred thousand dollars for to to give out in prizes. Though this is really more of what we consider an open innovation model, meaning we, it's more about incubation and collaboration than it is, say, winner take all prizes. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're, you know, we're just entering that development challenge literally now, today. Um, so there's, you know, and it's going to take place over the next six months in three rounds of increasing length in time and increasing expectation of what, you know, what code is shipped, what kind of prototypes people build, and also increasing amounts of money. So basically, by the end of October, the first round will end, and we have $85,000 to um, essentially, you know, support teams who've entered. Then the, um, you know, the next round starts in November and ends basically into the year. Oh, sorry, so there, yeah, so so that round has now a little bit more time and it's one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And then the final round starts in January and runs through end of March. So it's the longest development stretch and it has the you know the bulk of the money. So two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Um, we'll go out to the various teams who are entering in. Um, so the hope, you know, the, the hope is really we we create a handful of apps, and and the time frame we're talking about is this is kind of in a way really the beginning, right? We the vision for US Ignite is to reach a hundred cities and a hundred universities in the next three to, three to four to five years, and create something on the order of sixty killer apps to show off the technology. I mean, the ultimate goal is to make this, you know, to, is to hand this off to the private sector and, and let, let this, you know, let this run. Um, it's not it's not something that's, you know, this is kickstarting um, these next generation networks um, for a bunch of reasons, but, um, the, you know, it's not to ultimately run, run the next generation internet or something. <laughs> 
let's uh, let's talk about a a process. So you know, sure. I'm home. I'm listening to the show, and I say, oh well, you know, I've got this great idea, and we've kicked it around, and maybe we've kicked it around in our hometown with its, you know, one meg network. So it is theoretical, but it definitely isn't. You know, we can't really give it legs because we don't have enough bandwidth to to make it work here. And we hear about. Uh, um, you know, the Ignite program, and we hear about Mozilla Ignite. What – describe the process of, you know, you know, this little small group of people with an idea. What would they do? What do they do first if they want to take advantage of one of these three contests or mini contests, if you want to call mm-hmm. them that? You know, yeah. what happens? Kind of give us an idea what the process is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and And this really is important. So – First thing, you know, obviously to it would be to go to our website, figure out just what, you know, what we're talking about here a little bit. In fact, there's a great one-minute video that we have on our um, MozillaIgnite.org slash about page that kind of does a better job of explaining this than, than probably my last rambling <laughs> bit. But so first of all, familiarize yourself with what Mozilla Ignite is about. Then I would say um, there are a couple steps you could take. One would be to go ahead and, and I think this is probably the next best step, to craft your proposal to us about what app you want to build. So we're, we've simplified the submission process. So you so you have to submit a proposal to us, which is a handful of questions, you know, describing what the pro, what's your problem, you know, what's the solution, how is this going to make people's lives better, how is this going to take advantage of next generation networks. What kind of skills do you need, you know, to fill out your team if you have don't have them all? And you know, it literally like eight or nine questions. Um, and so, sub- fill that out to the best of your ability. Submit that to us, and at the same time, get in touch with me and the other, you know, Mozilla Ignite folks, and we can help. Um, we can help be a sort of sanity check, bounce some ideas back and forth, maybe connect you with people if you want to get some more people for your team. Um, you know, people or resources. Um, if you're doing, an, you know, a, an app for the classroom, we could probably find some some teachers uh, and some, you know, or even students who might be able to use your app and give you better, you know, input from the very beginning. Um, so, so yeah. So go to the website, flesh your ideas out into the proposal itself, which is again pretty a pretty lightweight lift. It's really not that much time, and then get in touch with us. And then, you know, start building. I mean, the goal is to get a quick, there's a quick code sprint by October 25th, Thursday, October 25th, um, to get some sort of running code towards a prototype of your, of an app that you would actually build. Um, so that would be the start. And I think, I think it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I think, uh, you know, don't get lost trying to read through everything or figuring out all of what US Ignite is about, but like get your ideas together and get, and get in touch with us. It's probably the best, fastest way and most efficient use of your time to get involved. Um. Yeah, that's that's what I would recommend. Okay. Now, what kinds? I mean, you, you gave six, call it you know, broad categories of applications based on you know the initial ignite uh, you know idea or vision or what have you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thing is, is launched and it is in its first couple of months, first few months. Um. Can you give us an idea of more like kinds of applications within those broader categories? You know, it might help people kind of, 
you know, give them a little something extra to hang their hat on as far as ideas or what kind of ideas might be cultivated through this process. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and in fact, if you want to talk about specifically the winners of the brainstorming round, that might be the most concrete way to give people an idea. And then then I can talk about generalizing sort of uh, themes or trends that we saw across all of the ideas. So we had 305 ideas submitted um, across those different categories you mentioned. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we just announced these, but um, you, want, you want to dive in? Yeah, no, yeah, let's get a get a Now, these are the people, when you, when you say winners, tell us again, you know. Right. They have yeah, let me just, really briefly, the process, so this is for the brainstorming round, which meant, you know, not actually develop sending any code, but this is kind of imagining the app from the future as opposed to building it. Um, so, you know, we asked people, What's the problem? What's the solution? How does this make people's lives better? How does this idea take advantage of next generation networks? Gave people the opportunity to submit a little napkin sketch visual. Um, and so we got 305 ideas across the areas. Uh, the actual majority of the ideas were in education and workforce technologies, uh, followed by public safety, then healthcare technologies, then clean energy and transportation, and finally advanced manufacturing. We then had... Um, well, we don't need to go too much in the nuts and bolts. We basically have 32 people review all of the ideas, do it kind of quantitatively, score, and we had a few folks score them across all 305. And we looked for, number one, impact. <clears throat> to, to what degree could this idea provide significant public benefit and improve people's lives? Um, you know, what is the, how good is the story? How clear is it explaining why this excites people and, and how innovative is the idea? And to what extent does this take advantage of next generation networks? So, so those are kind of the, and 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 finally, is it, it does it really add value in a priority area? Um, and all of this stuff is up on our website. So it's not like this is secret sauce. But so the winners, um, you know, cut across all of the areas, and the total prize pool was fifteen thousand dollars, with um, a, a sort of gold prize winner of five thousand, two silver prize silver medal winners of 2500 each and then five uh bronze medal winners for $1000 a piece. So does that does that make sense? Yep, yep. I I think we're going we're going to hang of it. So in essence, Great. one of these phases is a different step along the path of getting from idea to finished app. So basically, he says, okay, we'll just do brainstorming as a first step and just brainstorm ideas and people Exactly to do well with that and then you'll have the next phase which will the end product for which they will get money will be something a little further than just an idea then you're looking for you know demo product call it or whatever but absolutely i mean because we you know, in a in a way i mean people imagine that you, people are just imagine that you know an app comes out fully fully finished from you know a couple developers working in their garage or something but to really make an app the, with impact of the kind we're talking about takes a village, <laughs> you know. So, getting the the domain experts, you know, who know the specific domain like education, um, who are willing to be mentors for a team, let's say, or 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 even just like flushing out an idea. Yeah, you know, we haven't really talked about the in-person component of this, which we do some hack fests where we actually have in-person events um, that take place over week a weekend. Um, but you know, a lot of the time. You know, there are kind of several categories of people who show up to that, but one of them is the sort of 
hacker who has a bunch of skills, is interested in some areas, but doesn't have a specific idea that they want to build out, you know, but they want to help and they, or they want to, you know, and they're excited about some of the ideas that, that come, that are surfaced. So this brainstorming phase was in a way like a nationwide level call on call for ideas and getting them, getting them fleshed out. But both the ideas and the people who submitted the ideas were, were the valuable resources we tried to uncover, you know, through the brainstorming process. And now, like, as you said, the hope is that developers take up some of those ideas, work with the folks who submitted them, um, or, or even just enter in with you know a brand new idea that, that they didn't submit to the idea uh, or brainstorming phase. So um, yeah, and so now it's, it's time to build stuff. Is, is basically uh, as you were getting at. So let's talk about some of the winners. Um, the first one of the bronze medal. We'll start we'll start with the smaller words and go bigger. Um, was called long term monitoring and crisis management system. And so this is in the health domain. And the idea was that. Uh, you know, ubiquitous, inexpensive, diverse kinds of sensors are changing the healthcare system. They're revolutionizing it. And this app is, just, is, is you know, one, of the, one idea that would basically allow you to take data from all of your various sensors. Maybe it's your phone, your smartphone that's like measuring as you walk, you know, where you're walking around, like a pedometer um, uh, or your scale at home or glucose meter, whatever the various sensors. I mean, then there are tons of them now. Um taking that data into the cloud, being able to analyze it in real time and helping you and your doctor, you know, both make like real actual real time decisions on that data. And so that was um Amr Ali and Dmitry Bulanov from uh both of them graduated from Boston University a couple of years ago in biomedical engineering. Well actually one biomedical engineer, one software engineer. Um and they actually came to a hack fest we had in Chattanooga, Tennessee a couple of weeks ago, um, which was our first or sorry, their first hackfest, and it was uh, a really cool hackfest in that they, they have a gigabit citywide network. So really excited folks from all around, and and, um, and there was a lot of local work going on to take advantage of that gig, as I'm sure you've talked about probably on your show. But um, basically, they you know they not only submitted an idea, which then won, they also came to the hackfest and are now you know trying to figure out what the first steps are to build this app um, to kind of revolutionize healthcare. So that that one is you know emblematic of a lot of apps that people are trying to do in a way like it's the holy grail of of being able to take in a real time way all of your health data as we can measure it and provide you decision support as to what actions you ought to be taking like should I be eating this food or not or should I be do I need to take some glucose now or not or is insulin now you know or not what those kinds of things or, or even to help your doctor understand what your I mean, the, the potential for actual biomedical knowledge creation is great, right? Because we're getting new data we haven't had before. We might notice that, like, oh, everyone who happened to walk down by the river got cancer 20 years later. Well, right now we're not collecting that data, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think there's actually potential for new knowledge discovery kind of embedded in these things. Um, let me jump to the next one, if, uh, unless you want to discuss. I, I think I took a little too much time on that. <laughs> um, High-quality open source web conferencing. So this is the kind of thing where <clears throat> this is in the education domain. You know, every student out there should have access to high quality high quality education no matter where they are. And this app is an open source app which basically provides a webcasting platform, meaning you can screen share, you can do video conferencing over it, you can share kind of education materials with people and 
it, it does it in a way that can be used, you know, from whatever grade level through, you know, end of life kind of uh, learning, you know, opportunities. So this is potential for workforce development. Um, it's an open source platform, so it's something that institutions will be able to use, you know, very inexpensively for what they want to do. And uh, I think, you know, open up, uh, in, in a way, scale the education system so that you can you can have many more people participating. Um, I mean, it's obviously not in person, so there's a, there's. I think the education system is undergoing some interesting changes right now in and of itself. And I'm not an educator nor an education theory expert, but I think it's interesting to see how these technologies will help um, learn things you know you couldn't learn before, or learn new stuff, or learn better, you know, learn more quickly, kind of stuff like that. So. So this idea, and this act, uh, is another illustration of a team who submitted an idea and won, and then is interested in actually entering the challenge. So we've got two. The first two here are both planning to actually build the idea they proposed, mm-hmm. and this one I'm sure, like you know, they're they're looking for more people. It's an open source project. I'm sure they'd be happy, um, you know, if developers want to contribute to what they're trying to do. That's something that uh, people should talk to me about. Mm-hmm. The next one is a is a um actually a really when when um Bob Evans earlier was talking about their apps this is just ringing like this is a you know right in their wheelhouse so this is um it's called Connect Health 3D so the Connect is the you know Microsoft Connect 3D sensor and the idea is basically like playing games with your friends is you know beats playing them alone and especially for games like fitness games uh, or or physical therapy so what you would do is you would get in front of your TV. You have this sensor hooked up on top, kind of like a webcam, but it's three, it takes 3D data, and stream that data to your friends' computers, and be able to have like six, you know, five or six people playing a game together and actually getting real 3D information about them. So you get really, it creates a sort of a realistic kind of uh, social experience of doing the game. So there's the sort of fun of playing with your friends. There's the, the benefits of fitness and and benefits for health, but what I think this app is really cool is that you would take the data, and I mean, again, there are a lot of nuances here with regards to privacy of data and health uh, laws like HIPAA, but um, take that data and actually be able to analyze, in hopefully an automated way, you know, people's movements in a way that you might say, oh, like, let's say my grandma played this game every day, and over the last couple of weeks, she's not moving her right leg as well as she used to because, I've been, you know, the computer has been sort of watching it, and... They notice that you know maybe she's having some ankle pain that she's not aware of or something, and you could put a brace on it. And if we didn't do that, uh, she might fall down and you know and break her hip. It, kind of like actual, you know, early detection essentially and intervention possibilities. Um, and even the I didn't really talk about much the physical therapy piece, like being able to remotely interact with a physical therapist, um, you know, from your home or even like a peer. Physic, you know, who, who's doing physical therapy together, and you can kind of work with each other. It just, you know, I, I, I tore my ACL a while back and had to go through the, you know, knee surgery and like, you know, six months of kind of physical therapy, and that stuff's hard, and would definitely be better if you could do it with someone else, or even just saying like, hey, can you watch me do this? I'm doing the exercise at home. I just want to make sure I'm doing it right. You yeah. don't have to go all the way into the office for that, <laughs> you know, or they don't have to come out to your home for that. Like, so, these okay. kind of things are, are, I think, would have real impact. Um, and that one was uh, by an entrepreneur out, out, out in uh, Virginia who's already has a successful company and is planning on uh, another one. He's planning on building this um, in the challenge. But you can imagine how that would work in 
with Hiawatha's stuff. And just, you know, another cool feature of, uh, of, of the game network or fast, you know, fast network. And well, I think there's, you know, I'm going to jump in here for a second. I mean, I think there is Please. to be said for, uh, someone with a game mentality approaching applications that are serious and, you know, serious healthcare product, uh, products, uh, you know, projects, um, education projects, uh, business app, you know, business management, business online management kinds of applications. But the bottom line being is that you can do some serious stuff by playing games with it. I mean, are you are you seeing that actually? Absolutely. You know, you had about three hundred and some odd people come in with ideas. Did you notice a lot of game oriented, you know, applications, even if they were of a serious nature? There was definitely. Um a solid number that fit into that category where you could see, I mean, and it sort of is tough having to do or, or being constrained to put your idea into one of these national priority areas. Um, but education and workforce development is really broad. So I think a lot of people, which is also one of my, my theory of why it's such, got so many ideas because exactly what you said, like so much of, of learning is about experience and so much of, our experience now in the virtual space takes place through games or at least through, you know, all of the best kind of 3d worlds that you can go actually kind of interact with things in are kind of game like. And so I definitely think there's, um, you know, games to create that experience, which is how you, uh, you know, in many ways, how you learn, uh, gamers and, or the game designers are, are really important people to bring into this stuff. Um, absolutely. Right. Because I'm one of my uh, doctors. At one point, we were discussing. I'm not even sure. Arthroscopic surgery. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, the kinds of people they that the medical centers and so forth, or medical institutions look to bring into uh, doctor you know, programs are kids who have a serious expertise in playing games because there's a school of eye hand coordination or in fact you know your look the ability to look at a screen and to be able to do really complex movements just by manipulating a joystick or a keyboard or what have you and they said well that's that core kiss, uh, skill set you can translate it into doing orthoscopic surgery because that's basically what orthoscopic surgery is you're looking at a screen and you're using you know your hands and you're not really looking at your hands while they manipulate this device that goes through someone's vein or someone's whatever to, you know, do some, some intense medical procedure. And, uh, so, you know, there's, there's something to be said for the gaming world and its influence on, you know, the very serious, uh, adult world. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that, um, what you're getting at is that, and I think this is true for a lot of people, like there are a lot of people who learn by putting getting their hands on stuff and going out and actually doing things in the world and you know making things the kind of stuff that our institutional systems aren't great or well no, I shouldn't say that but aren't, aren't you know could be doing better at right um and I think that a lot of the the promise of these new you know information and communication technologies like we're talking about on these gigabit networks is that it allows you to really richly interact in a way that's natural to you as a human being with you know, with uh, something that you couldn't do in the physical world, like diving down to the bottom of the ocean in a robotic submarine, um, exploring, you know, or, or 
traveling across the world and, and experiencing an archaeological dig site um, that you just don't have the money or time to go do, you know, for for ninety nine point nine nine percent people. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely think that that these, you know, access to this kind of computing capacity and data sets, you know, uh, really like will create rich experiences that are more natural and more intuitive for people and allow you to really learn stuff better. Um, let alone the potential of the sort of augmented reality type apps we're seeing with the public safety. You know, imagine you're a firefighter and you need to know, are there people in this building or not? Or where are the people in this building? If I'm going to run into it, uh, you know, or, or and, and you have a way of pulling that data up as you need it and not swimming through text, that's what we know, but just like some sort of really uh, unobtrusive or natural interface to that data it takes a lot of computing and a lot of, you know, bandwidth on, on, on the back end. So I don't know, some of the, some of the proposals, in fact, uh, the grand prize winner proposal kind of gets at this, the new possibilities for situational awareness, they call it, you know, knowing what's going on <laughs> um, are the, pretty amazing. Uh, so, Bill, we, we've got about 15 minutes or so. Let's take a couple of the other ones, uh, maybe that have yeah. different or, or maybe may an idea coming from a different uh, topic or genre or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So here, um, let's see. One I thought was pretty creative was uh, called Smart Streets for Smart Cars. And this is kind of recognizing that, you know, our cars are getting smarter and the the entire transportation infrastructure ought to as well. And so having sensors, you know, spread throughout the network, throughout the roads and the traffic lights and whatnot can, you know, help with a number of things such as, you know, just reducing uh, traffic to making the roads more safe uh, and more energy efficient. So, the, you know, there, there are possibilities there. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea one, would oh, yeah. basically if you have enough sensors in the road and you have enough infrastructure of a, you know, either wireless or some other technology that is capturing data, dropping it into a, you know, a complex application, that, that smart cars could drive themselves because they would just be gathering data from the environment around them. Yeah, and even, you know, there are a lot of intermediate steps before we have totally autonomous cars driving themselves around, but just say like, you know, people have this now with traffic sensors that kind of that know when there's traffic around. But that's pretty limited in deployment and you know, could we could do it much better if the entire grid were, you know, had sensors embedded in it. And yeah, that sounds like an expensive proposition, but you know, really, as we're upgrading a lot of our our infrastructure, this stuff is going in. So it's kind of a question of how do we take advantage of the sensors we're putting out there already um, to say uh, even just simple stuff like knowing when a pedestrian is nearby and, and making sure the light's red or, you know, changing the traffic flow for rush hour, you know, things like that. Um, but definitely interacting with autonomous vehicles when we get to that point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you saw California is now – uh, I think this just got signed yesterday. Uh, yeah, yesterday um, is going to allow Google or, or and, and you know, I don't know the nuances, but allow essentially the testing of autonomous vehicles on the roads. And Nevada already did, so it's this is coming, <laughs> coming down the road. But um, the um, here's another so here's another idea. This, this is the final of the bronze winners called the Rashomon Project, and this came out of the uh, a group at the Data and Democracy Initiative. Um, called Citrus at UC Berkeley. Basically, the idea—if you—I don't know if you've seen the, the old the movie Rashomon, but is to take a, a given event, you know, a music concert or a 
fire, a public safety, a riot. You know, you can imagine a lot of like any scenario where you have a bunch of people taking video from different angles, from their phones, maybe from high definition cameras, etc., and weave that whole experience into some interesting narrative uh, to create a new understanding of what's going on. So you know, you can imagine educational opportunities where you can do a choose your own adventure kind of experience through Tahir Square or you know. Uh, or um, what, you know whatever events that are, are being captured, right? Uh, and same, this could help with public safety kind of uh, kinds of situations as well, where being able to pull together multiple video feeds uh, and, and cr- weave them into one kind of solid event would create a new way of of knowing what's going on, right? Fascinating. Um, did you did yeah. you float the gold, the you know the top prize winner? I have not mentioned it yet. Okay. Which, let's jump to it. It's so we got well, three left. End of the show, and not not have mentioned them. So right, three left. I think we have time for all three of these. So maybe, yeah. Okay, I'll jump to the top winner. This is the gold medal winner, and this this relates to a lot of the ideas we've been touching on. It's called real time emergency response, observation, and supervision. Mm-hmm. And so, this again gets to that issue of like un, of understanding what's going on during an emergency is essential to reacting to it, both for the first responders, like the firefighters, the law enforcement officials, as well as people, you know, who are there. So this app basically takes, and this is a group who's intending to build this, which is another cool thing, um, brings together live, high-quality video from multiple feeds, also incorporates sensor data, such as, you know, heat levels or smoke levels, Together with the sort of massive computing resources that you would have, because you have a really broad, you know, you have this really big pipe that can that can take your all these data uh, data flows to it and create a um, sort of simulated environment or even an augmented reality that can then be fed back to people on the ground, and so they can know what's going on. You know, and this is so we kind of saw this as like we wish that we wish firefighters and rescue workers had these tools now. Um, you know, it's surprising it's surprising to me, but from what I've you know, learned a little bit in the public safety realm is there's very little situational awareness of really, really bad disasters for quite a bit of time. Um, so, I mean, like 9-11 is another, you know, uh, horrific example of this. But um, this is the kind of thing that, I mean, it's still a ways away from the kind of deployed app you would see where people are, you know, or rescue workers were actually using this. But we need to start building it now so that in a few years we have it, you know. Um, okay. The final two, the silver prize winners. Um, this one is in advanced manufacturing, and I think it's a, a really cool app. So it's uh, remote process control using re- reliable real-time protocols. So basically, this using these new networking technologies, the high speed, but also this programmability of the network, allows you to do to predict to have very low latency, meaning very low lag time between the information you're sending and getting, but also predictable latency, which is almost as good as as having low latency. So if you want to do stuff like 3D printing, uh, you know, and monitoring uh, or or monitoring some kind of manufacturing process like in very real time, this network allows you to do it. And so the idea is to, to, to be able to remotely control 3D printers uh, or other manufacturing processes to improve the quality of the stuff we can build and allow you to you know build better things more cheaply and also to take advantage of resources you may not have in your location you know you can you may be a small business um working on some very you know and, and need some very specialized part 
um, but rather than have to build the equipment yourself or buy it, you can use someone else's and pay them some small amount, right? So it creates um, new business models in some ways for, for manufacturing and new opportunities for the sort of advanced manufacturing future we're moving towards. And this is a, this is another example of, a, of an app that is being built, um, hopefully, uh, so so there's a group in, in East Bay, in San Leandro, California, um, which is a manufacturing base, and they're they're thinking about what's the future of our manufacturing, and this is an app that they want to they want to help build. In fact, one of the companies involved with the, the San Leandro project won the president's E award for um, exporting over five hundred million dollars in goods, in this case software services, over the last five years. And they do process control. I mean, like they do, you know, if you have anything with a smokestack on it, such as like a oil refinery or you know, manuf- kind of manufacturing plant. They do a lot of the software that controls those systems. So this is an app that a university, uh, Purdue University, um, a few folks there are interested in trying to make this partly in partnership with this group, you know, with with expertise in these control systems. So this is this is something that's pretty exciting because I think it will really um, make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and the final app. Sorry, to make these kind of rapid fire. Is a this is a little more futuristic, but in some ways one of the cooler kind of apps to get your head around. Uh, Real time 3D interactive telepresence. So this is essentially beyond high quality teleconference or high quality video conferencing that people often think about with networks. Doing it in 3D, so you can say, be a teacher, uh, letting your classroom participate in a science experiment run out of a lab somewhere remotely, and being able to you know, move the angle of your camera around to look at it, or even, you know, have, imagine like a holographic projector. So, there, you know, that's a little farther out. But um, being able to interact with people or being, a pa- let's say, a doctor, and you want to see your patient and see them in 3D instead of just looking at a two-dimensional picture of them um, should allow you to do better, better um, you know, diagnoses and better interaction with those people. So so this this uses, a, you know, Microsoft Connect sensors to do streaming of very um you know high resolution 3D uh data. So it's kind of futuristic, you know, but could could be one of those things where right now it's like oh 3D that that sounds that, that sounds a little out there, but you know in a few years it might just be something we look back and think wow, there was you know it's like color television. People thought why do we need color television? Black and white is great, <laughs> you know. But um your perspective. You know, yeah. So so, we, so those were the eight ideas that won. I think it gives you a taste of what we're talking about in terms of these kinds of killer apps. Okay. So um, we have left. We've got about five, five or six minutes. What are maybe the two or three top things that you could advise, you know, those folks who are building networks, planning networks, how can they facilitate the kind of app development that, U.S. Ignite is is facilitating. I mean, obvi- the obvious thing is yes, they could become part of U.S. Ignite. You know, mm-hmm. not away from that. But what are things that people can do at their you know location in their town, their city, whatever, to mm-hmm. move projects, these kinds of projects forward? Yeah, I mean, I think as you pointed out, getting involved with U.S. Ignite or at least talking to the U.S. Ignite folks is a good start. Um, but I would also say. Starting to build that that kind of social infrastructure of, you know, the people who are actually going to help you pilot uh, an app in your community, or the angel investor group who's going to actually fund the business to do this, or um, 
you know, like it takes it takes a lot of the sort of community catalysts to to make these things actually useful to people. Um, I don't. I think it's it's important to actually build quality infrastructure and get it out there, but at the same time, you know, some part of you has to be thinking about the use of that infrastructure. Um, so I think that's that's uh, important. Um, the other thing I think that is interesting, and I and I personally believe is 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 where the future of this networking stuff is going to go, is the software-defined networking capability of some of these uh, these routers. So, you know, I think there are limits um, of the sort of traditional TCP IP-based routing. And and even not to focus on the limits, let's focus on the unconstrained network you have when you can define a new protocol entirely, you know. And essentially, rather than just putting your – your code on the edge of the network on your on your phone or on your computer you can now program the entire network across like firewalls routers you know everything you get a little slice of it that is essentially running your your program and so it's tailoring the network to the app as opposed to kind of fitting the net the app to use the network i think that the software defined networking world is is is, ex- is exploding right now and i don't know you know who knows if this is just going to be something that only happens internally at, at data centers like Google data centers, or if this is actually something that will really be the next generation internet. But I think to think about as you're building infrastructure, this is again this is geared towards uh, the, those folks out there who are building infrastructure. Think about these software-defined networking capabilities, um, you know, along the way. Mm-hmm. Well, this is um, the, uh, you know this has been a pretty good uh, discussion. I mean, I think I, I find it interesting. I think the most interesting thing about discussing uh, applications in a gigabit world is that the world isn't there yet. I mean, there are, mm-hmm. you know, quickly become more communities like Chattanooga and Lafayette, but, you know, on the relative scale, there isn't a lot of there there yet mm-hmm. to try to drive this process of applications to try to encourage the networks, right? It's the old chicken and egg thing. Absolutely. But it's a challenge. It is a, um, I mean, it's a conceptual challenge. I think it's a marketing challenge or a monetary challenge because you're basically asking people to put a certain amount of sweat equity, idea equity, and so forth into something with no guarantee there's going to be uh, a payback or at least Absolutely. not. Yeah, no, it's hard. Um, and we're trying to break that chicken and egg cycle. Um because I think when people see what they can do on these networks, um, I, I think people will be demanding the infrastructure and, and demanding the service. You know, so I think that that's the way we're trying to help break that is to is to create a demand with some with some prototype apps essentially um, that work in some places. And you know, the writing is on the wall. This is this is the future. The internet is getting faster. <laughs> we're we're moving. You know, we're moving towards this this future. Um, you know. In terms of U.S. national competitiveness, I think we would like to see it happening quicker. Um, but you know, it, it, we're getting there. It's a question of when, not if, right? So, um, but right. you're right. The people who are having to weigh the business decisions and thinking about return on investment—it's not an easy uh, thing to devote a lot of your time to right now, um, unless you're planning on running your business out of Kansas City. <laughs> you know. Um, All right. So we've got to go let, – let's one more time get how it is that people can get in touch with you. Yeah, so first of all, drop me an email. My email is will 
at mozillafoundation.org. Um, come to the website. You'll you'll see uh, you know how to get involved. Maybe some other you know other resources. Explore around what we're what we're really talking about here. But you know, getting getting something into the challenge is what we're really focused on right now. We want to see some stuff built, and so you don't have to be a developer. If you want to throw your weight behind some effort someone else is is working on, that's great. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of room for that. Uh, so please drop you know if if this tickles your fancy or gets you excited, like call drop me an email and we'll we'll see how to get get involved. Um, Excellent. That's what I would. So, Will, I want to I want to thank you for being our guest today. Um, I also want to thank our audience. I know, well, probably our audience and you guys don't, you will don't have the same thing as like those of us who've been through three days of the show. It's like we're we're definitely happy to see the day come to an end. But <laughs> you know, keep uh, keep the dialogues going, keep the ideas flowing that we've talked about, you know, here on the show. Uh, undoubtedly, you know, Will, I'll be in touch, you know, as you guys progress. So, you know, we'll 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 keep we'll keep the ball rolling. We'll keep the information flowing. But, you know, again, many thanks for being a guest on the show and I really really appreciate it. Oh, well, hey, we we appreciate the chance to talk about it and uh appreciate your work out there. So, thank you. Thank you to our audience and we will talk again uh tomorrow from Montgomery, Alabama. Goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.